Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Paul Stovall, CEO and founder of Octopus Deploy, a deployment automation tool for DevOps that's raised over $170 million in funding. Paul, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem at all. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. So my name is Paul, uh, founder and CEO of Octopus. Started the company in 2012. I'm a software engineer by background, so I you know, started my software career in 2005 and then yeah, started Octopus in 2012, and, and since then, this has been my baby. And two questions that we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as an entrepreneur. First one, what founder or entrepreneur do you admire the most, and what do you admire about them? Good question. So I grew up in a country town and kind of thought a lot about software and software businesses, and I kind of became a big follower of, at the time, uh, Joel Spolsky uh, and Eric Sink. They were blogging a lot about building uh, software businesses. And Spolsky in particular, I think, you know, started with Fog Creek, but then ultimately went on to Stack Overflow and Trello, like two kind of pretty amazing businesses coming out of that world and, and was obviously a great writer as well at the time. So yeah, those two come to mind. What about books? Are there any specific books that have had a major impact on you? And and how I like to frame this is, we call it a quake book and we actually stole that from someone else, but they defined it as a book that just like rocks you to your core. It, it changes how you view the world and, and changes how you think about the world. Do any QuickBooks come to mind? Oh, good question. When I got my first software job, you know, I was 18 years old and I'd kind of somehow landed this job at a software company. And I went to a local, you know, we still bought books from bookstores back then. So I went into a, a local bookstore and they had a book called Coded to Developer by Mike Gundelwood. And it's not in print anymore. But the premise of this book was, you know, hey, you know how to write code, great, but that doesn't make you a career software developer. Like to be a, a software developer successfully working in the industry, there's a heap of other stuff you need to know how to do well, like how to estimate software projects, how to track the items that you're working on, you know, how to do continuous integration, continuous delivery, you know, a bunch of, of these things were kind of laid out in this book. And you know, I think for probably the first six years of my professional career, that sort of framework actually just really stuck with me. Hmm. Super fascinating. Now, I'd love to switch gears a little bit here and just dive deeper into Octopus Deploy. So just at a high level, can you tell us a bit more about what the product does? Sure. So we help companies to automate the deployments of the software that they're building. So if you imagine every company, every enterprise is full of software teams now who are building software for, for their own internal use, following some kind of agile software process. So at the end of those you know, two-week sprints, monthly sprints, you know, the software that they're building, we take that and deploy it. And in most companies, that deployment process, you know, is going to be a document that says like step one, go over here, step two, log into AWS, step three, you know, do these things. And, you know, there's a lot of human error. It's typically done, you know, at a horrible time of the evening when systems aren't being used. You know. And it's generally a process that software teams dread, you know, like it's really fun kind of building features and fixing bugs and the code works on my machine. But getting software into production really sucks and it doesn't have to. And so our goal is to turn that deployment time from being a sort of miserable part of the software delivery process into a really joyful, 
happy time software teams where they can kind of just celebrate the fact that they've built something and now it's running in production and it wasn't a nightmare getting it there. So that's, that's what we set up to do. And take us back to 2012 when you first had the idea. What was it about this problem that made you say, yep, that's it. Let's do it. Let's build a company around it. Yeah, it was actually a really long process. So like I said, yeah, 2005, I started as a software developer and I uh, ended up working at a consultancy and through there probably worked on hundreds of different client engagements. And at the time, agile software development had really come to prominence. And so, you know, I mean, if you take the the 12 kind of principles of agile software development, you know, that first one of like, we're going to satisfy the customer through continuous delivery of working software. You know, my experience was at the vast majority of companies that we worked with, you know, their software teams had source control, they had bug tracking, they had some way of doing an automated build, they ran unit tests, they had them, but actually getting the software into production was such a kind of nightmare that they put it off. And so software deployments became a thing that you did, you know, at night times, and then they went wrong. And so they became a thing that you did on weekends at nighttime, and they went wrong. And so they became a thing that instead of doing it every two weeks, you did it once a month, then it became once a quarter. And by then, of course, you're doing it so infrequently, you can't even remember how to do it. So they tend to go wrong even more. And what we found was that, you know, the best way to, you know, that core principle of, of agile software delivery, you know, continuously delivering working software, there was real truth to that. You know, when we were able to make that happen at companies where we could, you know, every week, every two weeks, ship working software into production, get customer feedback, do something with that feedback, turn it around and deliver better software immediately afterwards. It was such a powerful thing. And you really moved from this antagonistic relationship with a business where, you know, they've got this large expensive software team that just doesn't seem to deliver anything to, you know, the software team becoming these real enablers of success at the company. And you become kind of heroes to the business teams that are using your software. So this was like the fundamental kind of thing that gnawed away at me for years and years was this idea that, you know, agile software delivery is all about continuous delivering working software, but no one is. And the tooling, I think, was a big part of that because, you know, setting up source control was something you could do very quickly you know, within a day, train people how to use it. Bug tracking was kind of an easy process. Setting up continuous integration even was an easy process, but deploying the software was still this kind of really hard thing. And I think, you know, not deliberately, but just because software engineers were kind of used to using build automation tools like Jenkins, um, seeing that around, you know, it becomes like it's an automation thing. And they think of deployments as the thing they want to automate. So they naturally try and kind of squish it into the CI system. But it's not designed for that. It's not what Jenkins was designed for. Jenkins was designed to compile code to run tests. It wasn't really designed to deploy software. And there's a whole kind of problem domain around deployments that no one had kind of really explored. So Octopus started as that. We're not a CI system. We don't try and do builds. If you're using Jenkins, if you're using GitHub Actions, you know, continue to use them. They're great. But if the deployments are not a solved problem, that's where we can really help. We can kind of get that software into production working and do it quickly to a point where you can accidentally deploy to production in the middle of you know the day and no one's going to notice because it's just going to work. That's the goal. And just so we can understand the scale that you're operating at today, are there any numbers you can share that just highlight some of that growth, traction, and adoption that you're seeing? Yeah, so we've got a bit of a uh, 3,500 paying customers. We have the team at this point, about 200 people. We've been growing you know, really strongly over the years and we are profitable, kind of always been. And yeah, so that's kind of rough sense of scale. 
And is that the way that most startups operate in Australia, that they're profitable? Because here in, in Silicon Valley, as you probably know, that's not super common. I think the companies here are very used to, you know, running where they're losing a lot of money every month and every year. And and that's just OK. So is that unique to your company? Is that unique to you know Australia's you know focus with startups or what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I'd say, you know, money kind of for a long time being so cheap in the Valley, probably the idea of running a company at kind of major losses, you know, was a possibility, whereas that just kind of never really was. I'd say because venture funding in Australia was less easy to tap into and there was kind of just less of a kind of industry around it, companies, you know, there is this sense of like, it's not a real business until it's profitable that, that probably still permeates here, which I think is actually probably a helpful mindset to have anyway. And that's kind of regardless, like even within Australia now, there are, there are good kind of venture companies or, you know, like investors that kind of run from early stages back to growth. But I think there's still this kind of sense of we want to build real businesses that are self-sustaining and profitable. And I think what you don't see here is the idea of, you know, capital being a moat in and of itself in the same way that it might be in the States. Now, something we also like to ask about are near-death experiences. And I know you were bootstrapped, so maybe you didn't have you know, the, the sudden near-death experiences that some Silicon Valley startups have when they're you know, funding themselves with venture capital. But did you ever have any near-death experiences or just crazy stories from the early days that maybe haven't been told? We've never really had a, a near-death experience. We've had sort of experiences where you think that's going to happen. So you know, the competitive landscape for us consists of some really big companies, right? You know, we've got Microsoft and, you know, when I say competitive, like we integrate really well with them. And, and for the most part, customers kind of use us along with, you know, GitHub Actions, Azure DevOps, uh, things like that. I remember in particular though, when Azure DevOps, uh, when Microsoft kind of transitioned from Team Foundation Server to Azure DevOps, and it was clear they were putting a lot of work behind it. That was probably the one where we thought, okay, this could be it. In retrospect, actually, it never slowed us down. In fact, we just kind of, I think, got a bit better at telling our story of, you know, like deployment still on a solved problem and this is where we can help and, and just kind of really focused on now the customer value that, that we delivered. But certainly at the time, it was a, a scary kind of freight train to be, be kind of watching. Yeah, I can imagine. And what about finding product market fit in the early days? Is that something that you got right right away or did that take some time to really reach product market fit? It did take time. So the way we started, Octopus was a nights and weekends project for me. So I'm um, coming home from work, consulting or contracting at, at various companies and just kind of wishing that like, the deployment process was something I could kind of solve in a day and not this kind of like weeks and weeks of effort to, to try and solve for every company that, that I worked with. And so started working on Octopus nights and weekends and kind of slowly building it up. And I was blogging about it at the time. And a lot of people kind of ended up finding those blog posts and getting, I think, really excited about this problem space being solved, but not necessarily the product itself. And I think this view that like the first product launch, it's the beginning of that conversation with the market, right? So you sort of, like I built this product in my spare time, got a version one out, you know, launched it, it was purple and green and you know, not the greatest UI. But it was kind of functionally, it worked and kind of showed the concept of what I was trying to kind of solve. And then, you know, people picked it up and they gave feedback on it. And I listened to that feedback a lot and involved the product. But it was probably, I would say, you know, about three years or so of just sort of beginning as a nights and weekends project and then eventually becoming something that, um, I don't know, that I was able to kind of afford to work on full time of just kind of continuously listening to that feedback and shipping a better product. I think the, the sort of moment, 
product market fit became really clear was when, like I would go to user groups and do these presentations on how to use Octopus and people would ask questions and you just never had a great answer for how to do a particular thing in the product. And then there were sort of two that I did where you know, both of the presentations, all the questions after the answer was just kind of really easy. This is how you do it. This is how you do it. And um, sort of distinctly remember walking out of those thinking, I think we've we found it now. Like it's, the product's working and, and people are excited by it. And then that was kind of around the time too, a lot of the, the metrics and, and numbers started to kind of really um, point upwards as well. And what are your views when it comes to your market category? Is this a category creation play where you've created a totally new category or is it more chipping into and disrupting and transforming existing market categories? I think we're definitely in a, in a new category. We're definitely helping to define a new category of deployment software. The way the industry at the moment, I would say, thinks about this space is we have continuous delivery as this overarching concept or DevOps. So you've got like continuous delivery and then DevOps is kind of the two big things that we talk about. And then within that, you've got you know DevOps platforms that are trying to kind of do every part of the developer kind of ecosystem, but generally not the kind of day two operations stuff that tends to be done by other software, even though to me, it's kind of part of DevOps. And then we've got continuous delivery, which is sort of everything from a checks and code into source control through to it's running in production, but with a lot of tooling that doesn't kind of do that entire part of the story. And what Octopus, the way we've kind of thought about it more is these verbs of, you know, I'm planning my project, I'm tracking the progress I'm making to it, I'm building the code, I'm testing the code, and now I'm deploying the code. And we focus really, really squarely on that kind of deploying the code problem. So that verb to us of deploy is a kind of a really obvious thing, but that's not kind of how the industry, I think, thinks of the categories that we're in. So when we go to your G2 crowd or something, we have to kind of say, well, we're a continuous delivery tool, but but we're not because we don't do a bunch of the stuff on the left, but we do the stuff on the right really, really well, better than anyone. And we actually do some stuff a little bit further to the right around day two operations automation. Because when you think of that deploy verb, you know, the by virtue of the fact that you're deploying software, you know where that software is getting deployed and you know how the software is built. So you can also automate a lot of the things involved in keeping that software running. And in a majority of other kind of tooling platforms, those are two different tools. You know, Azure DevOps is meant to be kind of an overarching DevOps platform, but doesn't do the operations automation. You have to go and use Azure Runbooks, which is like a separate product for that. Whereas in Octopus, we actually bring the DevOps teams together in one place. And so we found ourselves kind of just listening to customers and, you know, building the kind of product that makes sense for them. But then every time we sort of get into, you know, uh, Gartner reviews or uh, G2 Crowd categories, you know, we just can't actually find one that, that fits us really well. And what's your relationship like with firms like Gartner? Are you actively, you know, working with them and trying to push this narrative of the new category or... Is Gardner not super influential in the buying process with the customers that you sell to? I mean, I'd say in the early days of Octopus, I kind of ignored them completely because we were kind of more focused on SMBs in mid-market. As we've had sort of a lot more success and traction in, in enterprises, Gardner definitely and these analyst firms, they do play a role. And I think it makes sense, right? You know, you've got enterprises kind of making large buying decisions on the products that they're, that they're going to be using. And they do want someone partial to kind of go to and get some advice on on what to do. I think because we've kind of struggled around the sort of category, because this is kind of a new category of software and there isn't a lot of direct competition for what we're doing, it has been kind of a challenge to kind of fit that in. But that's not, I don't think necessarily a, a bad thing. So, you know, we're playing our part in just kind of 
helping them to kind of understand these are the customer stories that we hear, you know, talk to some of our customers, you know, and kind of hopefully help shape that. But at the same time, being respectful that they have a role to play. But that said, I think this space that we're in, you know, software is still generally adopted by the, the software engineers, DevOps engineers who are going to be using it. And I don't think they, they pay kind of particularly high sort of regard to, to magic quadrants and things like that. But then it can kind of block you a bit later as, and you start to kind of expand as well. So you know, we're, we're respectful of that. And when it comes to marketing to developers and engineers, I'm sure it's tough, right? Because engineers and developers hate marketing and they're allergic to marketing. So from a marketing perspective, what are you doing to rise above the noise or what have you done to rise above the noise and, and really connect with developers and engineers? Yeah, you know, in the early days of Optimus, we often used to think that developers are sort of impervious to marketing, right? That you can't, they're too smart for marketing to work. I think actually now the way that we probably view it is that because developers are digital natives, they spend tons of time online. They get bombarded with marketing stuff all the time, you know, generally smart folks. They just spot bad marketing well. So you can you can definitely market to them, but you just have to do it in a very kind of genuine way. Like there's no point kind of going to developers and saying, hey, you know, we're the best tool ever because they're, they're just going to be like, no, you're not you know, by default um, because they, they kind of spot those marketing messages immediately. But if you tell customer stories, if you kind of just show, hey, here's what it does. If it's useful, you know, consider trying it. You know, I think they kind of respect that and, and you, can, you can kind of market in, in that sense. But it's just kind of good marketing and it's, it's high quality. It's kind of very content driven. Yeah. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Yeah, I think every founder listening in when they heard you say 3,500 paying customers, that's the dream, right? And, and reaching the scale that you're at, raising the type of money that you've raised, that's what a lot of founders aspire to achieve. What do you think you've gotten right? You know, outside of just the marketing that we've talked about there, what have you gotten right to reach this level of success that you've reached? I think, you know, luck and timing were probably a big part of it. Like the thing we found is there is, this is a, a really large unsolved problem that companies have. So as much as I guess we're kind of happy with the success and progress that we've had to date, we're sort of not the company that tends to celebrate success that much. And we just kind of focus on what's next. And I think the big thing, you know, when you look at the kind of wider DevOps space, you know, you've got these giant companies like Atlassian or Datadog where you know, their customers are kind of measured in the millions and and they've been incredibly successful and a lot of people use their products on a, on a daily basis. And they're just kind of solving different verbs on that space, right? Like Datadog kind of solves the monitor kind of verb. Atlassian solves the planning and tracking verbs with Jira. And that deploy verb is kind of a really unsolved space. So as much as we're sort of, I guess, happy with, with the progress we've had, it, you sort of feel like the potential is a lot bigger and we need to kind of work harder to, to keep growing and, and reach that. And Paul, when I take a look at your funding, it, it's very unique. You know, typically in Silicon Valley in the U.S., we see, you know, pre-seed, then seed, then series A, then series B, and it, it keeps going from there. But looking at your funding, I only see one round, and that was a, a series A, and there's no other rounds besides that. So my question there is, you know, when you initially were building the company, was the intention that you would ever raise venture capital, or did the VCs just see what you're building and say, hey, we want to be part of this journey? and and they, you know, pursued you in a way to to get involved. 
Yeah. So when Octopus started, it was a nights and weekends passion project. And, you know, I'd kind of grown up reading, like I said, Joel Spolsky's blog and, and just kind of dreaming of like, one day I'm going to start a software company and it's not going to be big. You know, we're going to employ two or three people. We're going to write some code, you know, hopefully charge enough to kind of cover our costs. And that'll be a lot of fun because I like making software. And that was kind of the dream for Octopus to kind of begin with. So it starts as a nights and weekends thing. And then eventually it was kind of, I was so scared actually to start charging money for it that you could go to the website and you could buy license keys, but I was terrified that no one would buy them. So I never actually built like a product activation feature in the product. Like you could install the product and use it without buying a license key and buying one was kind of almost a donation. It wasn't actually required to use the software, but still, you know, a handful of companies would start buying it and uh, I would sort of use the license key proceeds to take a day off contracting and and just kind of keep uh, reinvesting time back into building the software and then eventually you know we got big enough that we could afford to employ a couple of people and then it just kind of grew organically from there and i think you know so that was that was kind of from 2012 all the way up until 2021 and i think kind of by like 2018 2019 the traction and, and the success that we were having this is you know totally bootstrapped the traction that we were having was kind of so obvious to investors that they started coming to us and pitching to us. And at the time, we were growing, you know, 30, 40% every year. We were profitable and just didn't really see any need or any value add from raising. And that continued all the way up until 2021. And so by this point, from 2012 to 2021, I've kind of been doing this for nine years. And I started to think a lot about well, what am I doing? Because, you know, we were getting up to, I think probably around the time we were probably about 150 employees. And, you know, that was, if I was to kind of say, what was my dream of kind of starting Octopus? It was to kind of get to 20 employees, you know, at that most and, and to kind of be growing and profitable and, and just profitable because it gives you the ability to stay in business for as long as you want, right? Like we should be in business because our customers think what we're doing is valuable, you know, not based on the opinion of investors. And so, so by that point, I think we'd sort of realized that whatever dream I'd had for the business was sort of, we reached that. And I was starting to think a lot about what was next. And I started wondering why are investors kind of so interested in this? Because, you know, my being here in Australia, I think probably the one disadvantage we have is our, our sort of horizon of what's possible just kind of feels a lot smaller than I think you might naturally have in the States. And so, you know, I started to kind of wonder why do they see this kind of space as so big and put a bunch of effort into kind of understanding that point of view. And. And then kind of realized, like I said, you know, the, if the monitor verb is so big and the planning verb is so big, why, why wouldn't the deploy verb be really big? And if it is going to be really big, should it be someone else or should it be us? And if it could be us, you know, then I'd be kind of, I'd really regret not kind of pursuing that. And I think the sort of small horizon thinking that I probably had you know, up until that point was actually kind of the one thing that was going to get in the way of, of us kind of uh, succeeding. And then, you know, it's just sort of, so by the time I think 2021 rolled around, I think I kind of reached the point of view that actually it probably was time to bring on an investor. I think too, when you bring on investors, you know, the right thing to do is to make sure that you are going to give them some kind of return on an investment. Otherwise, you know, why would you take it? That's not very moral. And at the time, you know, we'd had six or seven years of the kind of growth and everything that investors would kind of consider a good return on investment anyway. And so we weren't kind of signing up to anyone else's kind of time frame, it was just kind of like, just kind of keep doing what we're doing. And we actually thought that they would be kind of helpful because I think the other thing that were kind of obvious is, you know, we built a really good product and we had a really good support experience, but that was kind of it. When it came to sales and marketing, they were still things that we were trying to kind of figure out how to do well in a world-class way. 
And we thought we'd, we'd actually get more success working with an investment firm that had done that before. Now, based on your journey building Octopus so far, let's say if you were to be starting a company again today, what's the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? I think the biggest thing is, you know, if you're starting a company, chances are you kind of, you haven't started a lot of companies before and you're not kind of an expert on everything that it takes to build a company. And I think as like a technical founder, you know, the stuff around kind of building engineering product, et cetera, that, that probably came very naturally to me. Things like sales and marketing, I think for a long time, I probably put into the, well, I'm not a marketer, so therefore, you know, I'm going to kind of hire people who are experts in this space to just kind of do what they say. And I think over the years, there's been this sort of continuous struggle that I've had around, you know, how much do I follow my own gut, you know, when it comes to these things versus how much do you sort of rely on the, the experiences of others? And I think the advice, if I could sort of go back in time and, and give it to myself, would probably be to to still be incredibly open-minded about, you know, meeting experts in particular spaces, hearing, you know, what worked for them and trying to learn from that, but to be more cautious of taking advice from folks around, you know, what we should do and kind of trusting my own gut on that more. I think, you know, if you're the founder of a company and you've been doing it for a while, you know, your customers, you know, kind of how they think probably better than anyone else. And so, you know, listening to your own gut on what they want in the product, what they want as far as, you know, like what type of marketing is going to resonate, et cetera, I think is actually something that we sort of need to listen to more. And I think it's kind of really easy to go off the rails when you sort of suppress those gut feeling. And I know we're almost up on time here, so I promise last couple of questions, but one just came to mind that I wanted to ask you, and that's about your domain. So you own octopus.com. So talk to us about getting that domain and, and what that process was like. Yeah, so we started the company with the octopusdeploy.com domain and the first few years, that's kind of how we were known. And then the chance to buy the octopus.com domain came up. So the interesting thing about this domain is it's actually the 42nd oldest domain in the world. It was first registered in 1986. So it's a really old domain, but it wasn't being used. And it has this sort of interesting history of, uh, you know, there was a company called Octopus Travel Group in the UK. And they had a rogue employee who went out and registered this domain and was sending the traffic to their competitor. And so they sued this employee and the domain names arbitrator got involved and kind of stripped the domain from them and gave it to Octopus Travel Group. And then Octopus Travel Group was eventually acquired and um, um, the sort of brand name disappeared. And then this domain just kind of ended up available for sale. At the time, we paid an eye-watering amount for it, you know, in the sort of hundreds of thousands of dollars, really hundreds of thousands of dollars. Which, you know, as a bootstrap company, that was really hard to part with. And at the time, you know, we sort of thought it would be worthwhile to have the shorter domain and it's, you know, and what that signifies. The biggest mistake we made though is we then, you know, two years later realized we'd lost all of our organic search traffic because the domain would had sort of that sort of bad history. Google had kind of uh, penalized it and the penalty had kind of stuck even you know, we bought it. And because we had no one doing marketing at the time, we were just a bunch of software engineers. No one kind of even really noticed that the organic search traffic had kind of drops. <laughs> it's sort of after spending this massive amount of the domain, we sort of realized that we, we also hadn't really done a lot to take advantage of it. And in fact, we sort of shot ourselves in the foot a little bit. So that took a good kind of six months to properly resolve with Google. That's funny. I always love hearing the stories of these domains. I feel like there's always a story behind it. Yeah. Now, final question. Let's zoom out three to five years from today. What's the future for Octopus? What's that vision that you're hoping to build? 
Yeah, so helping software teams to kind of really enjoy that experience of deploying to production, just given kind of how many software teams are out there and how much further we've got to go, I think like there's this sense of there will be a really large business in this space that's kind of built that's, you know, not just helping a few thousand customers, but helping you know, millions of customers. I mean, that's the potential of what Octopus could grow into. And I think the thing that sort of gets me out of bed every day is, is this sort of sense of continuing to build the company up to, to meeting that potential. Um, I think I kind of really regret not giving it a good go. And uh, so kind of hoping, yeah, three to three to five years from now, that's where we are. Amazing. I love it. All right, Paul, we'll have to wrap here. But before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Yeah, I'm semi-active on Twitter or uh, I have a personal blog, actually, again, not super active, but um, a good kind of about page there at paulstovell.com um, and paulstovell on Twitter. Amazing. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and share some of those lessons that you've learned along the way. I really enjoyed our conversation and I know the audience is going to as well. So thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Well, me too. Thanks for having me, Brett. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 